Here I am. I'm excited for this morning. I, I really trust and believe with all my heart uh, that God is going to do something really special in first service, and I believe it's going to happen again here. Uh, this message, one of the things that's it's kind of fun about this message, we're continuing our series, Jesus is Better, looking through the book of Hebrews. Uh, this particular message I wrote three weeks ago because I was on vacation the last uh, 10 days, two weeks or so, uh, and so I put this together, and that's always a little dangerous because then that thing sits inside of me and stirs around, and, and so I am here on stage tomorrow morning just just excited um, for what uh, what God wants to do in your heart and your life. We're going to end the service in a really special way, giving you an opportunity just to be prayed for uh, in a very special way. So I just want to kind of lay that out too. If you will, turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. That's where we're at in our series, kind of pushing through this book. Uh, kind of, again, we aren't diving real, real deep that every last verse and every last word, uh, we're just kind of trying to capture the real heart as we move through. So chapter 7 and 8, it's page 1012 in the Bibles there in the seats in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to either use your smartphone or grab that Bible there. Now, kind of get us going. I want to start out with a fun story and, and kind of really dovetails well in here. On August 1998, I got down on one knee I mean, I got down like this, and I held out the diamond ring to a girl by the name of Tanya Brahm. You know her now as Tanya Nagel, if, if you know my wife. I got down on that knee. It was in a room. It was in a cafeteria with about 150 uh, teenagers to young adults who have been there all summer working at the camp that Tanya and I had been at. Uh, now, Tanya was stood on stage there, and I kind of started talking about the friendships that develop all summer long and how some of them are more special than others and encouraging them to keep their, it's kind of the banquet in the year, keep your friendships going throughout the year. And I said, this one friendship, you know, I want to keep going beyond this year. So I got down and I held that ring out. Now, that ring, the ring that I held out, that thing I bought about a month earlier, and, and we went shopping uh, together. Now, I tried to pull one over on her. She tells me today she knew exactly what I was doing. Uh, but we went down. I tried to be sneaky. We went to the Sarasota Springs. Um, some of you know the horse racing that happens up there. They have this really nice mall, so we kind of go down and walk to this mall. There's these four jewelry stores kind of right out in the center of the mall, and I'm just like, hey, sweetie, you know, what would you think if, uh, what do you think of this ring? And we're just kind of working down through. And we start up at the one end, and the, the guy there helping us, they said, so what's this one? cost and gives me this number. Man, I remember thinking, are you kidding me? I, could, I, I said, well, how about this one? This one. We move all the way down to this far corner, it seems, and there's these two rings left, and it's like, okay, I can afford them. Now, the thing was just over a quarter carat. It's not a big diamond, but the, it was real. I was proud of this thing. It's gold. I mean, it had a, had a legit diamond in it, and it's the one that she kind of said, yeah, I'd like that. And so I came back a week later, picked it out, and then now here I am on my knee in August of 1998 holding that ring out. Now, imagine if I came to that and said, I can't afford it. I mean, you know what? Let's go with a ring pop. I mean, that little quarter carrot, let's go. You guys know what a ring pop is? Some of you don't know. I see some of you looking. You know, what I would love to do, the ushers are going to come forward and give you all a ring pop, okay? Now, now look at this up here. The teens are like, yes, <laughs> we get a ring pop. If you guys want two, go ahead and take two. I mean, I see it up here. These guys are all excited. <laughs> now, a ring pop, unfortunately, we're giving you the small ones. They make them in two sizes, small and large. If you had a large ring pop, it would be 120 carats of diamond. Can you imagine that? 120 carats. So imagine if I said to Tanya, you know what? Forget this quarter carat business. I'm going to give you a ring pop. 
right? And I'm going to sit there. Not only, not only that, but not only is it cool, but hey, you can eat it too. I mean, you can't eat a legit diamond, right? I mean, you can, you can suck on this thing. It's good, which feel free. If you guys want to eat them, if, if your mom or dad, if you have parents here, if not, just dive in and enjoy it throughout the service. Or those of you that, hey, I can't eat candy like this, go ahead and take it home to your grandkids and sugar them up this afternoon. That's your call. <laughs> or they're saying, hey, we'll take more. I heard it up here. If you don't want one, no. So here's the deal. Wait till everyone gets their ring pop, and then I'll, I'll draw the point here. <laughs> everyone rips in and hope we have enough. I think we have enough for everyone. We bought plenty to hopefully it goes around. Now, imagine with me, if I had done that with Tanya and I'd simply held it out and said, hey, will you marry me? Now, the reality is we chuckle and some of us even have a hard time even imagining that because it is so absurd. Who would ever even think of that? That's worse than a candy, uh, the gumball machine ring. I mean, this thing, who would ever do that? But here's the reality. We would never do that there, but many of us do it with God and religion. Look with me at verse 5 of chapter 8. They serve in a system. They is referring to the priest. We're going to talk about them in a minute. We're going to kind of work backwards here. But they serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning, be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. So see what he's saying? He said, hey, listen, I have a way to worship me, God says, and it's, it's a big deal. It's important. Pay attention to the details. I'm going to tell you how to build the tabernacle, how to build the temple. I'm going to tell you what the priests are supposed to do. Matter of fact, he gets into even the detail of what the priests are supposed to wear, how they, I mean, it's, I'm going to lay this thing out for you. But what is it? Is it the real thing? It's a ring pop. See what it says there in the text? It says it's a copy. It's a shadow. The same as that ring pop you have in your hand is made to look like a really cool diamond. But it's simply a copy, an imitation. It's not the real thing. And I find so often when it comes to God, when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to church, we settle for a copy when the real thing is available to us. They say, well, how do I know if I'm settling? Here's what I want to do. As a church... I'm going to put a question up on the screen here in a minute. As a church, we say across the board in our leadership, if we lose at everything, you know, we'll be sad, but there's one thing we want to make sure we win at. We want this church to the very core to resemble and to reflect the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. We want to be, as we say it, we want to be gospel-centric. So what that looks like, we want our leadership structure to resemble the gospel. We want our policies and our governance to resemble the gospel. That's why, this little, that's why we say, hey, listen, we're not real big on these rigid laws. We want to say, hey, we want to do for one what we wish we could do for all. So we kind of go case by case. We work with it. We want our children's ministry. We want our life groups. We want, our, we want everything about this church to ooze the message and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So because of that, we'll, as, our, as our leadership, we will ask our leaders, there's a question that we'll cycle around and we'll come through uh, just to kind of make sure this drives in. And here's the question. I want to ask you this morning, June 26 at 10.59 a.m., how does God feel about you right now? How does he feel about you? How would you answer that question? I mean, really think, really push in. And then the follow-up question I think is probably even more important than this one, and that is this. How do you determine 
your answer to that first question. And what I find so often is here's the message of grace. Here's the message of Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus Christ is you don't work. You don't earn anything. It's not about what you do. It's about what he has done. Pastor Chris talked about that last week in a beautiful way. Trusting in his promises, not what I do. But so often our answers to that first question, how does God feel about me right now? Um, he's angry. How do you determine that? And you start listing all of what? The stuff you do. Is that the gospel? Is that the gospel message? I'd say no. Matter of fact, let me dive a little deeper with some other questions that would really maybe help peel this back even further. When, you, when life goes bad on you, you know, what bad you, all of us bad could be different. Maybe you get sick. Maybe um, a friend makes fun of you. Maybe you're financially struggling. Maybe the doctor gives you a message that just punches you in the gut. Maybe your business is failing. Maybe you hear from the doctor you're never going to have kids. Maybe a, it's the death of a loved one. But when life goes bad on you, what do you think in your mind about God? Some of us, I find what we immediately do is, well, God's mad at me. Or God's trying to teach me a lesson. Or God's trying to ask me to change the way I am living. Really? I think of a guy named Job in the scriptures. I think life went bad on him in a way that I don't think I've ever met anyone that's gone as bad as it did for him. And when life went bad for him, he lost everything, all but his wife. He lost his family. He lost his business. He lost his money. He lost his home. He lost it all. And I ask you this question, was God mad at him? No. I'd say this, was God trying to teach him a lesson? No. I'd say this, was God trying to get Job to change the way he lives? No. What was it about? It was about a cosmic battle between good and evil, between Satan and God, ultimately to demonstrate the glory and the majesty and the greatness of our God. But for some reason, when life goes bad on us, we go away from the gospel and we immediately think, well, it's all about me. I've got to change. I've got a lesson to learn. I have something. God must be mad at me. Maybe dig a little deeper. How about failure? How do you personally handle failure? I mean, for me, I've learned over the years, sometimes I'm afraid of failure. And what I've learned is a lot of times it's because it is very secure living within strict observance to rules. When I can live in here and I can be moral, when I can check off the boxes, man, I feel strong. Get scary stepping out there. How about these questions? Why are you here today? Why do you do the religious things that you do? Go to church, do a quiet time, give your money. Why do you try and avoid pornography? Why do you try to stop cussing? Why do you want to avoid, why, why do you do the religious behavioral things that you do? Is it sometimes to maybe answer that top question to make God feel good about you? What I've found is religion sometimes shifts away from personal response and it's more about personal responsibility. And the message of Hebrews is now it's about response to the real thing. Not the shadow, not the imitation. And I find it so often we answer that top question, it's usually with the things that I have done and how I've performed. Brennan Manning from the book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, some of you know, some of your children of the 80s and 90s, and remember Rich Mullins, the musician, and he had a song, and he was very influenced by Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning has since passed away. Here's, he left a huge mark on the church um, that I'm so grateful for. But one of the things he said, 
Brennan says this, though lip service is paid to the gospel of grace, many Christians live as if only personal discipline and self-denial will mold the perfect me. I want to pause right there. You know how many Christians I experience where we begin to think that? If I can just work harder, if I can just conquer this, if I can just stop that, if I can just start this, if, if I can, then I'm going to grow and got it down. The emphasis is on what I do rather than what God is doing. And I'd say, it's the ring pop. It's an imitation. It's a copy. It's a shadow. Not bad. Self-discipline. We're going to talk about it. It's not bad. The law is not bad, but it's not the real thing. Again, how does God feel about you? Right now. Get an answer in your mind, and I hope as we look through the text, that answer uh, is he loves me. And if it's not, I hope I through this message you can walk away saying it. Look with me at chapter 8. Look at verse 1. I love when writers do this. Sometimes you read scripture. I'll be, I'm a pastor and I read scripture sometimes and I scratch my head going, what does that mean? I love when they do this. Here is the main point. Thank you. It's like, yes, here we go. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. Verse 3, and since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest since they already are priests who offer the gifts required by the law. And then he gets into verse 5, which we already read. They serve... Those priests and that whole system, they serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. Now think about this. So here is the main point. We have a high priest who what? What did he do? Pastor Chris talked about this two weeks ago. He sat down at the end of Hebrews chapter 4. Now here's the cool thing about this. When you go back into the Old Testament, look at all the structure of how the tabernacle and how the temple was to be built. Do you know the one piece of furniture that you will never find instructions to be placed in the tabernacle or temple? You know what it is? There's one piece of furniture that does not exist in it. It's a chair. Because the priests were never done doing what they had to do. They were always working always offering blood and sacrifice, always trying to go between for the people to God and say, hey, forgive them. There was never a chair. In the the real thing, there's a chair because the work is done and Jesus is sitting down because it's all over. Uh, The other thing too, you're going to, this week and you're reading, if you're in the known journal and reading through the reading plan, you're going to read about this guy named Melchizedek in chapter 7. Man, scholars have a hard time trying to figure out who is he, where is he. Here's the deal with Melchizedek. The, one thing we, the only thing we know comes out of Genesis chapter 14. We know that he's a king and we know he's a priest. And we know he's a priest outside the tribe of Levi, outside of the family of Levi. Levi and his family was ultimately becomes the priest in, the, in this system that was set up. And uh, Melchizedek was outside of that. Jesus is outside of the Levitical priesthood. So, so that's what we kind of see is Jesus was this perfect priest. Jesus, if he was there, he wasn't even Levitical line, but he fulfilled everything, and, and he sits down. Look up at chapter 7. Look at verse 23. 
There were many priests under the old system for death prevented them from remaining in office. I mean, it's like, okay, thank you. That's obvious. I mean, they die, so we need more. So they keep coming. But there's a transition. But look at verse 24. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. So, I mean, he's sitting down. It's all done. Verse 25 then is crucial. I mean, it's kind of where the title of this message came from. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He's able to save once and forever. Now, as you think about that, um, in, in the original language, it captures a picture of complete and perfect. But in fact, some of your translations will be, say, he's able to save completely. He's able to save perfectly. He's able to save to the uttermost. Complete and total salvation. Here's how I kind of liken this. Uh, we, again, we were in vacation down in Florida. Got to take in the Gulf Coast. I mean, just gorgeous. I've never been there. Beautiful white sand, warm water, absolutely mine. Had a great time as a family. The very first thing my boys noticed when they walked out on the beach, for those of you who have been there versus the Atlantic Ocean, we've spent all of our time at the ocean is in the Atlantic. The very first thing my boys are like, oh, there's no waves. What a bummer. So again, so we worked through that, and we got them skimboards, we're having fun. We were there a few days, and a storm had come through and really churned the ocean up. And we come out that day, and suddenly we're like, yes, there's waves. As we got into the water, though, as you guys have been in rough water, what do you begin to feel happening? There's that, and they had a flag up and the things, warning of rip currents. And so we feel this suction under the feet, and they tell you, hey, be careful. Now imagine, you get stuck in a rip current. And you're sucked out, and you're fighting for it, and, and the lifeguard stands up there, and the lifeguard comes out, and the lifeguard throws you a preserver. says, there you go. Swim to shore. You got what you need. That's how a lot of us look at salvation. God does his part. We do our part. But is that how it works? What did the lifeguard going to do? That lifeguard, is, if he's not, we're going to another beach. I mean, that lifeguard, he's getting in the water with you. Pastor Chris talked about this two weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 4. He got in the water with us. He risked his own life. He gave his own life. He gets out there and he grabs hold and he brings you to shore where you're safe. Total and complete salvation. You do nothing. He does it all. And then he sits down and he continues reading. Look at verse 26. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the high, highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness, but after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. So there's this comparison between Jesus and the earthly high priest, and the comparison is, hey, these guys had to make sacrifices day in and day out. Now, I would, I'm a teacher at heart, and, and I know Chris said last week, too, he gets a little nerdy at times when he jumps into scriptures. I have a tendency to do that, too, and so I'll try to avoid that here, just give you a kind of a 20,000 view of the sacrificial system. This is kind of cool to really understand the link between this and Jesus. But the sacrificial system was set up in the Old Testament. Remember, it's a copy. God says, I'm going to give you a ring. And it's every single day this had to happen. The first one, the, the, most, uh, the one that's most readily referenced in the Old Testament is what's called as the burnt offering. It happens every morning and every evening. It happens every new moon. And it happens at all the yearly feasts. 
And this is an animal. It requires blood. There always has to be blood for this offering. Now, the second offering you'll find in, in the Old Testament is what's called the grain offering. And this offering is not, is the only offering that does not require blood. The grain offering is simply in a agrarian culture saying, okay, I'm a farmer. I've, I've grown all these crops. I'm going to bring a portion back into the tabernacle. Some of this was done to ultimately help it sustain the priest. It's what, it's what the priest lived on. And so they had, could make a living themselves and, and have food to eat. So they would bring that money and, and those things back in and, and they'd say, hey, God, thank you for what you've provided for us. So that was the second offering you'd see. The third offering you, you saw in the sacrifice was what was called the peace offering. So it's the people now making peace with God. It required a bull, a cow, a lamb, or a goat with no defect. And I love the picture of this. When they bring the lamb in, the priest would literally lay their hand on the lamb. And a lot of times they'd turn and hold it backwards and they'd put their hand on that lamb. And they're touching the lamb, not to hold the lamb still so they can kill it, but they're holding the lamb still and they're transitioning the sins of the people onto that lamb. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. So they hold it, they transition the sins and all the guilt and all the shame. And after it's transition, the priest would then take that knife and slit his throat, let all the blood pour into a bowl that was then used as part of the sacrifice to God. Blood was required. Now you go on, and there's, so that was the sin off. Then there's the sin offering. The sin offering was, again, required blood. And a sin offering, they built a system in that, requ- that covers the unintentional sin. You know, sometimes you sin because you want to sin, or you intended to sin, or you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway. Then there's this offering to cover the sins that we just kind of accidentally fell into. Then there's an offering called the guilt offering, which is very similar to the sin offering, but this is now looking at their human relationships, not just the God relationship. It's saying, okay, when I sin, I hurt you. I've done something to you. I've robbed you of something. So this offering is now making restitution for what I have done. Then the one I love most, (laughs) the picture of this. Have you ever been called a scapegoat or heard someone reference to a scapegoat? Leviticus chapter 16, talk, these two goats come in, and the one goat they take, and the one goat they, they sacrifice, the other goat they, again, the, the priest would literally lay their head at times on it or transition again, every, all the guilt, all the shame, everything onto this goat, and then they would release the goat out in the wilderness. So just kind of the picture of saying it's now outside of us. We can live free and at peace with God. So this had to happen. God sets the ring pop up, if you will. It's a copy. It's a shadow saying, hey, this is how I want this to be done so you can have relationship with me. And it goes day after day after day, blood, and it's a bloody experience. And Jesus comes along and says, I am the perfect sacrifice. I am the perfect priest. I am the perfect go-between. You no longer need someone else to come to do this for you. You can now walk right in to the throne room of God. And I do it completely. Now, what he does beautifully then is look down at chapter 8, verse 6. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors. 
And when I took them out of the land and led them out of the land of Egypt, they did not remain faithful to my covenant. So I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. So that's the new covenant versus the old covenant. I'm going to unpack that in a minute. When God speaks of a new covenant, please do not miss this verse. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. You don't need the ring pop anymore. The shadow's done. That imitation, it's over. He's made it obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon, this is another beautiful picture, it will soon disappear completely. As you think about this new covenant, let me just say this. The law, that first covenant, those 10 commandments are not bad. They simply cannot do what they promised. Look at chapter 7, verse 19. For the law never made anything perfect. But now we have a confidence and a better hope through which we draw near to God. So see what he's saying? He's saying, hey, the law, that old covenant, that first covenant, it couldn't make anything perfect. Remember, I would say this. If you're holding on to the ring pop and you're trying to get your life better by obeying all the rules and you're trying to get to God by sticking to his 10 commandments and that's the way you're going to do it, I actually believe Romans chapter 7 teaches that you will actually get darker, not brighter. It will actually go bad on you. Because it cannot make you perfect. It cannot bring you to relationship with God. But again, it's not bad. In fact, Romans chapter 10 would say it this way, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So in other words, Christ brings an end to this thing. No more need to merit. No more need to work. No more need to, to dig in and offer all these sacrifices. The law was actually a tutor. Let me say it this way. Galatians chapter 4, if you read it this week, it says, uh, basically, the law was set up to lead me to Christ, to tutor me, to teach me. In fact, I would say if you cheat on law, you ultimately cheat on grace. The law's not bad. I would say it's hard to know God's grace without first understanding God's law. God's law was given so we understand how he thinks, how he processes, what he expects, how he's established life to work. And if I don't really grasp the bigness and the greatness and the magnitude and the holiness of who God is, I'm always going to go short on grace. I always miss the magnitude and the beauty of what grace really is. So he establishes this new covenant. Now, what is the new covenant? There's a lot of verses that we could look at to unpack and, and kind of look at it. But I want to jump into, excuse me, 2 Corinthians says this, clearly, you're a letter from Christ. This is the Apostle Paul talking about the people that he pastors and he leads. Clearly, you're a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. There it is. And we just read that in Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to come and I'm going to get rid of the first covenant. I'm going to write something on a heart. I'm going to, other places in scripture talk about breaking the heart of stone and giving us a soft, moldable heart of flesh. He goes on and says this, we are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of this new covenant. 
It goes on, this is a covenant not of written laws, but of the spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the spirit gives life. Do you remember when you read there in Hebrews chapter 8, it says you no longer have need to have teach and, and instruct anyone. You're going to know my law. You're going to know who I am because I'm going to give you that new covenant. Do you know why he's saying that? The Holy Spirit is going to be given to us. Those of you who believe in Jesus have the spirit of God, and he's referred to in scripture as a teacher and a counselor. So you don't need to have all this checklist and he's rights and he's wrongs because you now have God living inside of you. It's a relationship. It's a, it's a walking with, a listening to, a, a, a talking with, and, and conversing. Now, there's a lot of great verses in between there. I may want to read them this week. Jump down to verse 18. It says this, so all of us who have had that veil removed, again, the veil is a picture. There was a veil in that, in that original uh, temple and tabernacle that separated the, the holiness of God and, and where the priests could come. So all of us have had that veil removed. So it's been torn away, and you can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. That is the message and the grace of the new covenant. You don't need, the, there's nothing between you anymore. You step right into the presence of God and the Lord who is the spirit makes us, and look at this, out of, a, out of a response to this, there's a growth that comes out of this and the Lord who is the spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Remember, the law can't deliver perfection. The law can't make you better. I mean, the more you try to rely on the law and self-discipline and self-denial and sacrifice to get better, you will actually get darker. It is the new covenant of mercy and grace and receiving and accepting that one-way love is what grace is. Receiving that, you receive that, and in that process, you are going to grow. and You're going to mature, and you're going to develop. Now, here's the story. I want to bring this kind of to a close. Let me do it with this story. It's a famous... You ever, in a, those of you who've grown up in a church, when you hear a pastor all of a sudden shift to this well-known, well-known stories, you're like, oh, you kind of check out, right? This is one of these stories. It's the, the, the story of the prodigal son. Every time I hear pastors start talking, I'm like, I've heard so many messages on the prodigal son, I don't want to hear one more. But hang with me on this. Let me ask you a question. Those of you who know the story, why did the prodigal son come home? Remember the story? Some of you know the story. He comes to his dad and says, dad, you're as good as me to dead. I really want all your stuff. Give me all your stuff, the inheritance and the will. Give it to me now, and I want to live with it. I don't want to wait till you die. So he gets all the stuff. He goes off. He has a phenomenal time, throws parties, has all kinds of friends, gets new clothes. I mean, he is, he is set. What soon all runs out, and he decides to come home. Why does he come home? Do you know, a lot of us think, well, he finally repented. You know, we think, well, he understands he broke his father's heart or he came home because he desired a relationship with his dad. That's how we talk in church these days. Sinners, come home to your heavenly father because he, he loves you. Sinners, you know, re- repent, come to God. That's not what the prodigal son did. Do you know what he did? He stumbled home to survive. That's all he did. Here it is. I'll show you the verse. I love this verse. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. Now, in a Jewish culture, Jesus telling this story, the Jews would have been like, gross, pigs? Pigs are unclean animals in the Jewish mind. And not only that, he's feeding them, and not only that, he thinks he'd like to eat some of their food. 
So this guy is at the lowest place possible for a Jewish young man, but no one gave him anything. Now look at the next verse. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food. So this guy's starving. This guy's hungry. He says, man, at home, the guys who serve my dad, they've got food. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, father, What's he say? Father, I've hurt you so bad, I repent. Father, I want a relationship with you. Father, what's he say? Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. So he recognizes that. That's cool. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. So please take me on as a what? I'm going to put my ring pop on. Dad, I'm going to come home. I'm going to work for you. I'm going to sacrifice. I got the ring pop. Dad, Dad, you know what? I just need to survive. I just need to make it. I'll work for you. Now, those of you who know the story, I love this story. Those of you who know the story, when the son is a long way off, the scriptures say, the dad does something the Jewish father would not have done. He rolls up his outer tunic, and so he can, because those are big, heavy. He rolls this thing up, and he runs to the son, and he embraces the son, and he hugs him. The son can't even get his whole speech out. And what's the dad do? The dad says, hey, get all my servants together. Kill the fattened calf. In other words, let's have a party. They throw a gigantic party, all kinds of dancing, and I mean, it is celebration. You know what's awesome? Let me say this. What I learned from this story is mercy and love precedes true repentance every time. You know, sometimes we in a Christian church think, oh, we got to tell people to repent. People will not repent until they know there's a God who's for them. People will not turn to a God. I believe when the prodigal son understood the gospel message of grace was when he was in that party. He didn't, he says, man, I don't need to work. I can take the ring off. I can have the real thing. I have a relationship with him. I'm, I'm home. I'm a son. I'm brought back into the family. What have I done? Nothing. You've simply received. And I believe though the story doesn't go any further than this, I believe in my own mind that son honored that father from there on out. Mercy and love. If you don't see a God of mercy and love, you will struggle to live a holy life for that God. And I believe he understands that in a beautiful way. You know, let me say it this way. The most difficult part of mature faith, if you want to grow in your faith, which I believe all of you do, most of you come here because I want to grow. The most difficult part of mature faith, of growing, is to allow ourselves to be the objects of God's delight. You will not grow, in my opinion. My heart as a pastor for this church is to say, I want you to grow, but you're going to struggle to grow and mature unless you can grasp and understand God loves me. He's for me. That's why I come back to that first question. How do you determine, how does God feel about you right now, and how do you determine that? How does he feel about you right now? Let me cast it in this light. Imagine right now Jesus shows up to you and says, hey, clear your calendar for tomorrow. we got to have lunch. We're going to go to Shady Maple. Right? Good place. You sit down, and there's food going all over the place, wonderful donuts and all kinds of good goodness, yummy goodness all over the place, and all the hustle and bustle, and and you lose sight of it all because there you are sitting with Jesus. And imagine there you are at dinner, lunch with Jesus, and he wanted to get together because he has one, one simple message for you. What is the message he would have for you? You as a person right now, what is the message he would, what would he tell you? About anything he could tell you. As I ask this question of people as I walk with them for years, I hear all so often, well, he'd tell me to stop and then they put something they shouldn't, shouldn't be doing. Does he want you to stop? 
Yeah, probably. You know, he'd tell me to start. Does he want you to start? Yeah, probably. But you know what I believe the one basic message would be? He'd look at you across that table, look at you in the eyes, and say, I love you. I died for you. Trust me. Allow yourself to be the object of my delight. But here's the real practical part of it. We as people hate receiving. We love to give. We'll serve our tails off. But when we're suddenly in a position of need, we don't like that. That's why I love Matthew chapter 9 picks up this. When Jesus heard this, now here's what he heard. Uh, Matthew, the tax collector, the hated tax collectors. They hate them. They're horrible sinners in the Jewish mind. He decides to follow Jesus, and when he decides to follow Jesus, he receives Jesus, and then he decides that he calls all his buddies and throws this big party. And the guys with the ring pop, the guys with the copy, the guys with the shadow, as it says in Hebrews 8, come along and are like, no, wait a minute. Jesus is hanging out with, the, come on, this guy cannot be of God. So Jesus hears this, and the question is actually given to his disciples, but Jesus answers it because I don't think his disciples fully grasp yet the beauty of the message. So here it is. He said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Who needs a doctor? Who needs them? Sick people. Then he added, now go, and he, and, he, and he looks at him, and he quotes their Old Testament law. He uses the copy. He uses the shadow. He quotes it to say, listen, even in that copy, it captures the heart of where we want to be going. He says, now, he quotes Hosea. He says, now, go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. There it is. Take the ring pop off your finger. I've got the real thing. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous. They don't, they're not in need. But you're in need. I've come to call those who know they are sinners. Here's the practical part of how this works. Please, the heart is a pastor. I want you to hear this. Do you know when I watched that, that horrible tragedy down in Orlando a few Sunday mornings ago, the outpouring of some Christians and the hate that I see towards homosexuals breaks my heart. Christians in general can be so nasty and judgmental. And I believe it's because they've got a ring pop on their finger because here's how it works. Here's how this works. If I live life being righteous and working hard and pulling myself up with my own bootstraps and I make it because I am moral, then I'm going to look out at you when you're struggling and your sin and your dysfunction and I'm going to look out and say, hey, I worked hard, you can too. And it's nothing but judgment. Go work hard. But when I can be in a position of need and understand that, you know what? I don't want the ring pop. I want the real thing. And I understand that I am in need and I can do nothing with grace but receive it or reject it. And I receive it, that one-way love. Those who have been forgiven much turn around and love much. That's the beauty of Matthew chapter 9. That's the beauty of Hebrews 7 and 8. That we have a perfect high priest who set you free. Put the shadow, get it away, put it down, take the ring pop off. Again, the law cannot make anything perfect, but Jesus does. If you want to grow, if you want to mature in your faith, if you want to walk close with that God who loves you, it is so important you work your tail off to keep coming back to, in your mind, I am the object of his delight.
I want to end this service. I want to do something. This was really cool. Three weeks ago, we put this together. So I wanted to end this. And then we went to church last week in Florida and they ended their service this exact same way. And so I got to take some notes and it was just, it was a confirmation to me. But I believe with all my heart, your marital dysfunctions, the struggle with your friends, the struggle, the pain and the heartaches that you guys wrestle with at the core, if you want to move forward in that stuff, Let's come back to the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. Be the object of his delight. Receive. So I'm going to open this front of the church up. We're going to sing a song here in a minute, How He Loves. Our elders, a number of them, are not all of them, a number are going to be up here, and they're just going to be up here to pray with you. And it's for anyone. Maybe you're for the very first time you're accepting Jesus, and we celebrate that. Or maybe you've been walking with Jesus for years, and you're just like, man, i got to recenter myself. I'm hurting. Come on up. Just receive prayer. And I've asked all the elders to do something special. I've asked all the elders, anyone who's praying with them up here, just to lay their hand on you. It's not weird. It's, it's okay. Here's why I've asked them to do that. It's a great illustration of this this week. I was in a hospital this week with someone. A long, hard experience. And I watched someone in this, in this situation come out, and I could see the weight of the world in their shoulders. And someone else is standing there and says, how are you doing? And he begins to answer the question with all the logic and all the facts, and this is what happened, and this is what's going on. And then the person stopped him and said, can I give you a hug? And he walks over to him and and just gives a hug. Do you know what happened with that person? They burst into tears. They just lost it. Do you know why? Human touch is so important. We receive the grace of God from one another. I mean, we receive God's blessings through relationship. These elders care for you. So again, I just ask them not not to give a cup and give you a full-blown hug, but just put their arm on you and say, we love you. I want you to know the love of God. So again, I'm going to pray. When I'm done praying, we're going to all stand and we're going to sing. And as we stand, just come forward for those you'd like and just receive prayer. But please know, how does God feel about you right now? In Jesus, he loves you. He's wild about you. Be the object of his delight. God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. How we love you and thank you for that grace and mercy. God, my heart has been so heavy this week for this message, even in my own life, just to continue to pull me back center. How quickly I want to put that ring pop on my finger and go with the old system. It's safe and it's secure and it feels so good. God, you're asking me to take it off. To come to you. The author and perfecter, the one who saves completely. God, thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Can I just pray right now for this time? I pray there's a real time of, of, of healing, of growth, of refreshment. Some God, some in this room, I pray right now that there's a start. Maybe this message is brand new to someone here and they're like, man, you mean I don't need to work for this? God, would they just maybe right now just know that them simply putting their, their trust in the promise of Jesus brings them into relationship with you. So God, I don't know what's going to take place right now, but God, I trust for just healing and life uh, where there was death. God, we love you. 
Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.